Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. I got up very early this morning, rolled out of a very warm bed very reluctantly. I thought of, after first service, a tweet I saw this last week. Maybe you saw it. It said that the inventor of the snooze alarm died last week (laughs) and that his services will be held tomorrow morning at 8, at 8.06, at (laughs) 8.12. That was a bit of my morning this morning. Rolled out early, reluctantly out of a nice warm bed and began the routine that's very common for me. I'm a creature of habit, a bit different on Sabbath, but still quite similar. Spent some time in reading and in prayer, and then because it's Sabbath morning, spent some time going over the sermon again. Got dressed, took the dog out, took our dog out on her walk, and went over the sermon again. Our dog approved. (laughs) Came back home, went in, showered and shaved, got dressed, and then enjoyed an exceptional breakfast thanks to Anita. I have to tell you what the breakfast was. It was a bowl of Hot quinoa. Amen. Amen. There you go. I was waiting for somebody, Hans. Thank you. Hot quinoa. On top of that, applesauce, slivered almonds, pomegranate seeds, and then a very healthy serving of berries, raspberries, blueberries, blackberries. And then Anita has discovered something in more recent months that we're now using. It's a milk that is made out of, are you ready for this? It's made out of yellow peas. Yellow peas. And so this cereal and all the toppings smothered in pea milk. (laughs) Now that's a concoction. I'm probably going to live forever. (laughs) It was very good. Enjoyed that immensely. Drove to church, got to church, parked in the structure, Came across the street, came in, did sound check. We had one final meeting going over all the details, and then first service began. Well, I stand here this morning keenly cognizant of the fact that if there were one thing in my life that were different, just one thing, that everything about this morning would have changed. Just one thing. In other words, if we didn't live in a middle-class community, if I didn't have the wonderful honor of pastoring a church in the Southeastern California Conference, if we were poor, everything about this morning would have changed. Obviously, it would depend on where, what country, and what level of poverty, but it could have looked something like this. First, there might not have been a warm bed to roll out of. But I would have gotten up, and maybe the first thing on my mind was not a shower, don't be funny, 
but finding clean water, water to drink. That becomes priority number one. And then probably not a walk, probably no exercise. In fact, I would probably have eaten breakfast, and it may still have been cereal, if that's what you call it, taken from the shelves of the grocery store, one of those boxes to which if you read the ingredients, you discover that it is very high in sugar content, very high in empty calories, maybe milk or possibly water. It's the kind of diet guaranteed to move you down the road toward ill health and possible obesity. And then getting to church. How does that happen? Well, if I live near a bus stop and if I have enough money, I would catch the bus. But I have to leave much earlier in order to leave time to make a change or two to arrive here a mere eight miles away. Or if I'm maybe a little bit more fortunate, I might have a motorcycle, a second or third or whatever hand motorcycle, held together by wire and prayer. That might get me here. Or a bicycle. That's a possibility. Or maybe that most common form of human transportation of all, walking. Might have walked two miles or three or five or eight miles, leave much earlier in order to arrive here on time. And then I would get to church, if you call it that. The ramshackle building, maybe a hut. Maybe it's just a group of people gathered under a tree. I stand here this morning very aware of the fact that if I make that one change in my life, everything else changes. Just to underline that reality, let me share with you just a few. He has many, but just a few statistics drawn from a book called The Hole in Our Gospel, written by Richard Stearns, World Vision USA president. Gathering a few of Stearns' statistics, consider this. One in eight people worldwide, that's 842 million people, almost, not quite, but almost three times the size of our country. One in eight people worldwide go hungry every day. Every 10 seconds... A child dies from hunger-related causes every 10 seconds. That means that by the end of this sermon, somewhere between 150 to 180 children dead. Hunger-related causes. Every 21 seconds, a child dies of a waterborne disease. 775 million adults worldwide are illiterate. Almost one in six people, nearly two-thirds of them are women. One in four children who start primary school do not finish. Then consider these statistics about women. Women work 66% of the world's work hours, produce 50% of the food, earn only 10% of the income, own only 1% of the property. Over one-third of the world's people, 2.5 billion that is, live on less than $2 a day. Not even a trip to Starbucks. Those are overwhelming statistics. But it's easy to think, that's the big picture. What do I have to do with that? 
That's a world away in another place, in another country, geographically very distant from where I live. So Stearns is trying to bring it home to us, to talk with us here about how that might affect us or what we might be like if we lived in such conditions. So a couple of paragraphs from his book. Listen. Think about your own life, he writes. How successful would you or your family have been if you had lived in a place where there was no clean water and one quarter of all children died before their fifth birthday? Imagine growing up constantly weak and malnourished to the point where both your body and your mind became stunted. What if there had been no health care system and therefore an abscessed tooth or an ear infection was a death sentence? What if you had lived where you couldn't go to school because you had to fetch water six hours a day or where there was no school? Or worse, think about what might have happened to you if rebel armies had sacked your community, killed your parents, and driven you hundreds of miles from your home to live in a refugee camp. These are the daily realities of the world's poor. No matter how hard they work, how gifted and talented they are, or how big their dreams, the poor have few choices and even fewer opportunities to fulfill their God-given potential. These precious human beings created in God's image have been left behind and cast on the garbage dump of history by circumstances they cannot change. We must never say it is their fault. How dare we? Disturbing. Unsettling. Just change that one reality about each of our lives. And not just our morning, not just our day, but everything about who we are would be different. Now, it could be, again, that you say, but that's a country way south of us, way east of us, way west of us. That's not here. Things are different here. They are, to a degree. But we do have to consider the realities of what is true here as well. For example, that just over 16 million children live in homes where they cannot be certain to, re, to, to be able to eat regularly and on a healthy basis. Over 16 million children in the United States of America. 62% of teachers say, I have students in my classroom who come to school hungry. They sit trying to do their schoolwork while their stomach growls causing Clay Dunn, who works with an organization entitled No Kid Hungry, to say we have to make sure that they have basic food to eat because you cannot learn while you're hungry. Let's feed them, says Dunn, so that when they come to school, they will have a hunger for but one thing, and that's knowledge. A friend of mine, a teacher, high school teacher, San Bernardino area, texted me after first service. And he said to me, that's in my classroom every day. It's a daily reality. Hungry children. United States of America. 20% of families that are food insecure, in other words, they're not quite sure where their food is going to come from, fall into that netherworld between those who can receive government aid and those who can't. For income reasons or for other reasons, they can't receive help, and yet they're still uncertain where their food is going to come from. Right here among us. 
And when you talk about the different people groups, minorities suffer and struggle much more. 25% of African-American families food insecure. 20% of Latino families, only 10% of white families. So it is true, it's there, it's out there, it's in other parts of the world, but it is here as well. So with those realities in the background, considering how different our lives would be changing that one truth, I want to read you a proverb. We're going to go to the book of Proverbs. In this brief three-part series, we're looking at the Proverbs. We go to Proverbs 19 today. Proverbs chapter 19. We're only going to read one proverb. But while you're going there, remember not just the backdrop I've just mentioned, but remember what's immediately in front of us. It's Thanksgiving time of year. Somebody told me this week, we're going to gobble till we wobble and waddle. And there's probably some truth to that. The person who wrote this, the sage of ancient Israel, knew exactly what it was to do that. Wealthy beyond our imagination, had everything at his fingertips, and yet if we gather one thing from him, let us gather the fact that he did not forget the plight of the poor. He has much to say about it in Proverbs. You heard our scripture reading today. Togar Memora and Victor Siagian as they read a number of different Proverbs from this book detailing the interest not only of the sage who wrote the Proverbs, but of the sage's God in the poor. And that's what we'll read this morning. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 17. Simple words. Petite, pithy, pungent. Those who are kind to the poor lend to the Lord. And he will reward them for what they have done. Those who are kind to the poor lend to the Lord. And God will reward them for what they have done. If you linger over those words for a moment, one of the realities that emerges, and it will strike you, is the close, the decidedly close relationship God sees between himself and the poor. You find it all through this book. You certainly find it in the ministry of Jesus, underlined by these words from one Mark Lutz. Listen to what Lutz writes. He says, Jesus showed his solidarity with the poor through his teaching, parables, and lifestyle. It is no coincidence that in his very first recorded message, he referenced the poor. Imagine God incarnate making his human debut and selecting one message from the Hebrew Scriptures to begin his teaching, and it is this one. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That's where Jesus begins a decidedly close relationship. After all, consider what our Proverbs says. Those who are kind, those who are compassionate, those who are generous to the poor, what are they doing? They're doing something to the poor. They're helping the poor. But the sage says it's not just that. They are lending. They are giving. They are being generous toward God. And God will see that. God will bless that. When you pause to think about it, that thought is intricately tied 
to one of the parables Jesus told. While we read it in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, it resonates again in the New Testament book of Matthew. It's right in a list of parables that Jesus has told about what it is that will constitute readiness for his return. Matthew 24 and 25, he's saying, if you want to watch, if you want to be ready when I return, then listen to these stories, learn their lessons, and live your lives in this way. The last one of those stories, his bottom line regarding what will constitute readiness at his coming is this. How did you treat the needy among you? What was your response to the simple and basic needs of others. You read his parable, and he doesn't talk about any grand work, any great gift, any foundation established. You know what he talks about? A cup of cold water to a thirsty child. A sandwich to a hungry woman. A blanket around the shoulders of a shivering homeless man. A visit to a hospital room where the patient has had no visitors. A visit to a jail cell where the prisoner has no friends. That's what Jesus talks about. You want to be ready, he says, when I return? Do you want to give evidence that your heart throbs, that your heart beats at the same rhythm and in the same tune as the heart of God? Then I will know that by looking at how you treated the needy. What did you do? Because that gives the heartbeat that lives in your life. It's the same thought as the proverb. But maybe the most stunning part of Jesus' parable comes in the surprise of both the righteous and the wicked. They are both surprised when Jesus says, you did something for me, and they both say, what are you talking? We've never even seen you. And then comes Jesus' line. If you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. That's the proverb. That's the parable. What do we do with the human, simple and basic human needs around us? Back in my years of working in the chaplain's department here at the medical center, the director of our department was a gentleman named Jerry Davis, known well to many of you. During that period of time, there was a homeless gentleman that used to come into our office with some degree of frequency. He would come in looking for some food, looking for some help, looking for some guidance, looking for a bus pass. His name was Charles. Some of you knew Charles. Lived in Loma Linda, lived in Redlands, lived around different parts of this area. He would come into the chaplain's office, and I can still remember, Sylvia, to this day, I can still remember what Jerry would say to us. He would see Charles coming, and he would say, There comes Jesus. You be kind to him. Be kind to him. Well, that's what the wise man says. Those who are kind to the poor, are doing it to the Lord. And so the question comes to us. How do we respond? 
particularly in light of the kinds of statistics we considered. They're overwhelming. They're beyond the scope of sometimes of our imagination. And we, we move back, we pull away, we're paralyzed because we say, there's no way I can do something to make a difference in the world when the needs are so grand. But I would suggest to you, there is a way we can make a difference in someone's world, somewhere. So I want, to, I, I want to draw from what could be a very long list of options and ways that we might respond to the needs of the poor around us. What might we do to be of help? I want to throw out just four suggestions, four possible ways to think about that are well within the reach of every single one of us. Here's the first one. Volunteer. Volunteer. Go around this community. Go around this town. Go around the Inland Empire. You will find many organizations who are needing volunteers, people who will step in and who will do something to help in the work they are carrying out for the needy of our area of the world. Volunteer. The truth is, you don't have to leave the four walls of this building to be able to volunteer. Volunteer for something that this church, through its outreach ministry, is doing to make a difference in somebody's world. Stop at the Uconnect desk in the foyer. Take out your phone. Go to our website. Volunteer. There are many possibilities. Volunteer a few hours a week to be a driver, a transit driver, a driver for Meals on Wheels. Volunteer to be a part of the Burrito Project. Volunteer with the ladies who are making the quilts. Volunteer there. Go down to Relive Thrift. Volunteer in that capacity, in that setting, or step into the ministry called Excel. Step into the life of a child where you will have the ability, yourself, one person, to make a difference in one life. You can't change the world, but you can change the world for that child. Volunteer. It's within the reach of every single one of us. That's my first suggestion. Second suggestion, go on a mission trip. Go on a mission trip here in this country or beyond the boundaries of this country. Go someplace where you can help build a school that will train kids. You help build a church, build a medical clinic, where you can help staff a medical clinic where you can help put on a vacation Bible school where some of those children may hear the name Jesus for the very first time. Go on a mission trip. You will be touched and transformed, disturbed and changed by the time you come back. Talk to Pastor Roy, Pastor Roy Ice. Just returned not long ago from a mission trip to the land of my birth, Colombia in South America, but has one upcoming to the island nation of Cuba. It's coming June, going to Cuba to seek to make a difference in the lives of Cubans, but you will go to make a difference in their lives, and they will make a difference in yours. But don't delay. Cuba limits how many can sign up. Because of paperwork needs that they require, deadline is March 1st, 14, even though it doesn't happen until June. But go somewhere where you have firsthand exposure to the true and real needs of so many who inhabit this planet. Volunteer. Go on a mission trip. Or how about a third option? 
sponsor a child or several children. There are many organizations that provide this opportunity for someone who will never have the opportunity to go to another place, to meet another person, another family, and yet who they themselves go who vet the needs, and who give you the opportunity to sponsor a child as she or, she or he grows up, able to attend school, able to have food, able to have clean water. My wife and I have done this over the years at different times. We're sponsoring a child right now, a young boy, nine years old, named She, S-H-I. She lives in the country of China. It actually all began right here in this sanctuary. Some of you were here that evening, a bit over a year ago now, camp meeting, not just the one past, but the one before, when the singing group Veritas came. If you were here, you won't forget it. The voices of those five men filled this space in ways that lifted us up in worship to God. But that wasn't the longest-lasting part of the evening for Anita and me. The longest lasting part of the evening was when the bass, Scott Lawrence, when the bass sat up on here on a stool just back there and began to tell his story, story of his life, story of adoption, story of children in need. And then he said, we have formed a partnership with an organization that will allow you to sponsor a child if you wish. And we did. I walked by his picture, actually several pictures now, many times a day at home. I look at that picture that is slowly maturing. Read of his father who in a motorcycle accident was paralyzed, can't work. Read of how they moved in with the grandfather and are struggling to try to survive. And I just think what an honor it is to maybe make a difference in one life. Sponsor a child. Or what about the fourth suggestion? Give. Donate. Decide to forego a nicety here, a meal there, something else, the other place, and give. Give to organizations that are doing the work of Jesus in the world. Try ADRA, Adventist Development and Relief Agency. ADRA moves around the world. Ralph Watts, previous president here in our midst around the world to the hot spots of the world, places where people are truly suffering, desperate for help. Give to Atra. Give something locally here. Give to our UReach program. In just a few minutes at the end of our service, we'll take our annual UReach offering. It's the one major offering of the year for our UReach ministry. Contribute to that. It will go to help the needy in our community. It will also this year go to help fire-ravaged communities here in California to try to help with the work, with what they're facing, what they're trying to struggle with and come out of. That's within the purview of all of us. We can all give something. So I understand it's true. The statistics are overwhelming. They're too big for the imagination. We can't comprehend how many can live that way. Makes me think of the incident Dr. Robertson McQuilkin went through. Dr. McQuilkin was, was a world traveler. He traveled frequently as the president of Columbia International University. 
On this particular trip, he had gone to India, gone to visit his son who was working in the same city as Mother Teresa was working, but a bit of a distance from where she was. Though he was accustomed to travel, as he sat in the seat that day, as his driver drove him toward their destination, he was overwhelmed with the reality of the poverty that he saw before him, the cacophony of chaos in the streets, a million people on the streets, open sewers, suffering, anger, violence. It was overwhelming, the acrid stench in his nostrils. McQuilkin said he couldn't help himself and began to weep. The driver looked at him and said, Dr. McQuilkin, it'll be okay. Just give it two or three days. You'll get used to it. And he looked at his driver and he said, that's just the problem. I don't want to get used to it. I think maybe he speaks to us today. To us and, and urges us to say, we don't want to get used to it. We don't want to get used to children in schools who are hungry. We don't want to get used to mothers who can't pay the rent, to fathers who can't provide for their families. We don't want to get used to it. We want to do something to change it. And while we can't change the world, we can change the world for someone. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. His simple acts of beneficence may be echoing what the sage in Proverbs wrote, when you are kind, to the poor. You're giving to God. He'll bless you. He's given you so much. How about living out the principle of Jesus when he said, freely you've received, now freely give. There's something about that that builds on itself. That is recognized in the story of Paul Tudor Jones. Paul Tudor Jones, a businessman who had either an incredible knack or unbelievable luck or divine blessing, you call it what you will. But he defied financial gravity in his investments, and instead of falling at times, they just continued to rise. He became wealthier and wealthier. Now he's a billionaire in our country. He wanted to help. He wanted to do something for those who couldn't do for themselves. And so he went to a school in New York City and spoke to some of the students in the younger years. And he says, I want to make a promise to you. Every single one of you here who graduates from high school, I will give you a scholarship to college. Well, when that class graduated, only a third of them did so. Only a third of them took him up on his offer. He was dejected and disappointed. And so he decided, I have to dig in more deeply. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to do something that makes a difference. And so he established a foundation called the Robin Hood Foundation, which later would be called by Fortune magazine one of the most innovative philanthropic organizations in the world today. He has continued to literally shovel money in the direction of this foundation and its work with the underprivileged to the tune now of one5 billion dollars that he has given. Now, why would he do that? Many do never, don't do that, never do that. Why would he? Well, Tudor Jones tells a story. He says, when I was a four-year-old boy, I was at the market with my mother. A lot of people, a lot of chaos. I got separated from her and got lost. 
And for a child, if you have a child who's been separated from you or you have lodged in your memory a recollection of something like that in your own life, you know how utterly terrifying that can be, to be lost in a mass of people. I want to read it to you in Tudor Jones's words. He says, when you're four years old, your mother is everything. And there he was, lost. And this extraordinarily kind, very old, very tall black man came over and said, Son, don't worry. We're going to find your mama. Don't cry. We're going to find her. You're going to be very happy in just a few minutes. Tudor Jones says, You never forget stuff like that. God's every action, those little actions become so much bigger, and then they become multiplicative. We forget how important the smallest action can be. For me, I think it kind of spawned a lifetime of trying to always repay that kindness. One person's kindness. $1.5 billion and counting. Wanting to repay that kind act. That really borrows the sense of the proverb. You be kind to them, God will bless you. And then when you're blessed, you'll be kind to them. And when you're kind to them, he'll bless you. It becomes a cycle from which we don't want to escape. A cycle that we could call the kingdom of God. But while we're talking about the kingdom of God, I would remind you of this. The words of the late Fred Craddock, who said, Whatever we have, where some eat and others don't, we don't have the kingdom of God. 